This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In a couple months, November, actually, the Grand Concourse will turn 100. The Concourse, which cuts up the middle of the Bronx from 138th Street to Van Cortlandt Park, has in the last 100 years been a place where people aspired to live, a place people feared, an inspiration for art, and a spawning ground for writers and artists, among others. Today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about the Grand Concourse. Later on the show, we'll talk with Constance Rosenblum, whose book Boulevard of Dreams, Heady Times, Heartbreak, and Hope Along the Grand Concourse in the Bronx is out from NYU Press. But first, Sergio Bessa is the director of programs for the Bronx Museum of the Arts. That museum is running a series of exhibits about the past, present, and future of the concourse as interpreted by artists from around the world. That series is called Intersections, and the current phase, the Grand Concourse Commissions, presents specially commissioned projects by three contemporary artists considering present-day conditions along the Grand Concourse. The book Intersections, the Grand Concourse at 100, is a companion to the exhibit and is co-published by Fordham University Press. Bessa joined me in the studio to talk about Intersections. Sergio Bessa, welcome. Thank you. Now tell me about this exhibit. The Intersections exhibition is um, a project that the museum has been working on for a number of years. And uh, the main goal was to engage the community, not only the residents, but also other institutions. And uh, as a group, look at uh, the history of the Grand Concourse. As you can imagine, when the Concourse was designed 100 years ago, this area was uh, farmland. Um, It was actually a very bucolic um, landscape. Uh, People would come here to hunt or to um, just to walk. Uh, People could just, you know, come from Manhattan and uh, spend a day or a weekend here. Um, So anyways, there are so many beautiful stories about the Bronx and uh, There's two beautiful stories about the Bronx, of course, but we just wanted to take the opportunity to look back at that history and uh, share those histories with the the community. So I would say that it's an exhibition that it is for the general public, for the greater New York, but it's especially for the Bronx residents. So tell me about some of the pieces. What's this exhibit made up of materially? Uh, Yes, we actually uh, finished about a month and a half ago the first part of the exhibition, which was looking back at the past. And uh, we had wonderful pieces of artwork. We had, for example, a painting by Burgoyne Diller, who was a modernistic painter who was born in the Bronx, and he traveled all across America, but he had sort of a major presence in the New York scene. He was also involved with the commissions of the WPA, and uh, in that capacity, he actually helped to bring a lot of uh, artists to the Bronx, like uh, Ben Shan, for example, who uh, designed a mural for the Bronx Post Office on the Grand Concourse on 149th Street. We had a beautiful painting by Adolf Gottlieb, who was not born in the Bronx, but he he might have lived in the Bronx. I I was not able to check on that, but he actually had a painting from 1929 that it was about the Grand Concourse. We also have photographs by Andrea Curtis, Diane Arbus, Alvin Bautrop. So it was very interesting to sort of look back, you know, a century 
ago and see that many, many artists would come to the Bronx as a site for inspiration, an arena, actually, to sort of develop their work. There was this amazing piece by Gordon Mata Clark that it's uh, very controversial because in the 70s, when uh, Gordon was starting to develop his most kind of ambitious work, he would come to the Bronx basically because this was a time when the, there was a huge depression going on in the borough. There was a lot of uh, abandoned buildings. And uh, he was going into some of these buildings and uh, slicing pieces of the building and uh, selecting as sculptures. So we actually were able to bring one of these pieces from the MoMA collection, and uh, it just looked perfect in, uh, in the Bronx Museum. From your perspective as somebody who works in the arts, why is the concourse interesting or important? Well, uh, I think now in this particular juncture, uh, you know, we we know what's what's going on, for example, in Dubai, for example, that they are creating artificial islands and they are creating new cities uh, from scratch. And this is actually um, sort of a, a, a trend that's going on for a number of years. But in China, it's like new cities that, you know, uh, it's built in, in the span of uh, five, ten years. And uh, I think the concourse um, is, uh, it's a good example uh, for anyone who's interested in how cities develop. Uh, again, um, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but before the, the construction of the concourse, there was nothing here. There was a bunch of farms. Uh, there was a lot of... Uh, uh, untamed uh, uh, landscape, and uh, the concourse was uh, that element of uh, urban design that kind of organized uh, an entire city around that. So I think it's um, it's a great example for uh, architects and uh, urban planners, but also artists. Um, I think there is a lot of artists that when they come to the Bronx and they drive uh, along the concourse they uh you know there is this feeling of elation of uh, of inspiration and people want to uh to to contribute to uh to the site how can people learn more about the intersections exhibit well they can come to the Bronx Museum there is also this really wonderful book um that the Bronx Museum did in collaboration with Fordham University Press, with a, a number of very insightful essays about the construction of the concourse, the architecture, and also some ideas for how the concourse will survive in the future. And this will be the, the third part of the exhibition. The Bronx Museum organized a, an international competition in collaboration with the Design Trust for Public Space. And uh, we received about 400 entries from um, uh, about 25 different countries. And we just selected the seven finalists, and their work will be on view starting on November 1st. So, um, you know, we dedicated the entire year to the Grand Concourse, to its history, to the present, and also to think of the future. And I think people should just come to the Bronx Museum, Take a look at uh, our website, 
uh, and um, um, take a look at the book. What's the website? Uh, BronxMuseum.org. Okay, that's not too hard to remember. Um, Sergio Bessa is the director of programs for the Bronx Museum of Arts. Sergio Bessa, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're talking about the Grand Concourse, which is having its 100th birthday in November. When you think about something having been around for 100 years, it's no big surprise that it would have gone through some changes. I know I have, and I'm only 34. Author Constance Rosenblum traces those changes in her new book, Boulevard of Dreams, Heady Times, Heartbreak and Hope Along the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, from NYU Press. That book traces the history of the big street from its inception. Rosenblum joined me in the studio to discuss it. Constance Rosenblum, welcome. Thank you. Now, tell me about the very beginnings of the Grand Concourse. What was there before? There was very little there before. It was a real wilderness. It was one of the three great ridges that ran through the Bronx, north and south. And it was it was trees and rock, and it was gorgeous. But there was very, very little there except some proto-roads and some 19th century houses. No, this was obviously a huge project. Why was there a need for such a big roadway. There was a desire to connect the population centers of Manhattan with the with the great parks of the Bronx, Bronx Park, Van Cortland Park, and there, there was really no way to get from, from one to the other easily. The other thing, there was a desire to have a, a speedway along which young swells, young men could race their fine horses. And this highway served both needs. And though it, it ended up not serving those purposes, that was the inspiration. It's easy to forget now that the concourse and the whole area around it was a very sort of storied area at one time. When did that start to happen? When did people start to move to the concourse? And when did it start to develop as sort of a a major district in this area? It started in the early 20s. The the buildings that, that sprouted alongside of them, Lewis Reese had envisioned villas along the sides of the Grand Concourse, and that never happened. But what, what did happen were two interesting kinds of buildings. One were apartment houses with a, with kind of European flair. They had they had turrets and they had medieval and and other historic decorative accents. So you had these buildings which were were gorgeous, and starting after. Uh, after the worst of the Depression in the mid-30s and into the 40s, you you began getting the buildings for which the Grand Concourse is most famous, the Art Deco apartment houses. Trace, for me, um, you said at the beginning when the Concourse for, first opened, it wasn't really a very popular road. When did people start moving up to the area? And by the time you're talking about, who was living there? Yeah. People started moving in in significant numbers in the early 20s and continued for for several decades. And the majority of people who were attracted 
by the concourse and by the the blocks on either side. You didn't have to live on the concourse to to be in this neighborhood. Were the the upwardly mobile immigrant Jews from the Lower East Side and their children who were kind of leapfrogging through the city after they got their bearings in the New World? They uh, many of them went to Brooklyn, to to Williamsburg, to East New York. Many others went to Harlem. And from there, worked their way north to what we now call the South Bronx, but what was then called the the East Bronx. But they they always had their eye on the concourse, and they they leapfrogged their way over to the West Bronx. And often they would start living three or four or five blocks away from the boulevard, and then they would edge their way closer. And if they were lucky, they would, would arrive at one of the more modest buildings on the boulevard. And if they were really lucky, they would arrive at one of the more prestigious Art Deco and other buildings. What did it mean to people to live along the concourse or in the area? It was it was tangible proof that they had arrived, that they had made it. It was a a, a very concrete sign of prestige for them. And my sense from talking to so many people who who lived in this area during those years is that they they realized they lived in a in the premier part of the Bronx. It was as if living in these buildings enforced the fact that they had reached a certain level in American society, a certain level of prosperity, a certain social class. And it was as if the the architecture and the, the city planning aspects underscored their sense of themselves and certainly the sense they wanted to have of themselves. So who was who were the people in this community? If if I came in from outside, what would I have seen? They were mostly Jewish. The the vast majority of people who lived on and near the Grand Concourse were Jews. And a number of sociologists and historians have written about what they describe as the Jewish affinity for the apartment building. And they lived in obviously apartment buildings on the Lower East Side. But typically they were not eager to have a one-family home with a patch of grass around it. They were very content to be in a building with neighbors upstairs and downstairs and sideways. The the, the character Molly Goldberg is is a perfect example of this. She was a little more working class than your, your typical Grand Concourse resident. But she was always calling over to her, her neighbor, you know, yoo-hoo across the courtyard. And, and there was a sense of being part of a larger world and being a sense of a community that was, was very, very satisfying. But, of course, Jews were not the only residents of, of this area. Obviously, we're, we're here at Fordham, and there was a an Irish community in the Fordham area and also Highbridge, west of the concourse. There was a, a little Italian-American community up near Villa Avenue, the very northwest tip of the of the Grand Concourse, but it was, um, and there were members of other other immigrant groups who came here, Armenians, Greeks, you name it, but it was a primarily Jewish neighborhood. There were many, many temples and synagogues of all Jewish denominations, Reformed, conservative, Orthodox. Many of them have now been retrofitted into Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah Witnesses, use, etc. They weren't always all that religious. They went to temple on, on the high holidays, but but the Jewishness, as one one student of, of of New York Jews said, was really more inside them. It had more to do with with family and the grandparents, and maybe they lit the candles on Friday night. But it was such a Jewish neighborhood; they didn't have to say, "By the way, did I mention I'm Jewish?" 
one of the things that the neighborhood at that time um, gave rise to was a lot of writers. Um, and there's a lot of mentions of the concourse in fiction um, and also writers' mixed experiences with it. Tell me about that. Much of the writing about the Grand Concourse is very positive and it's it's very elegiac. Although one of the one of the things that I found most moving is is a novel that's simply called Grand Concourse that was published in 1950. And the author was Elliot Wagner, who grew up in the Bronx, did not live in the Grand Concourse. And he talks about the worlds on and off the Grand Concourse. And his his novel is is very much of a period piece, and I'm not sure it's a great novel, but I, f- I found it very moving when I read it. And it encapsulated the, the very mixed feelings that some writers had about this part of the city. On the one hand, he, he describes the people who live away from the boulevard as, as very unhappy, but he also describes those who live on the boulevard as unhappy. And obviously, no no street address or no building or no street makes a person happy. And especially if you were young or in your teens or in your early 20s and struggling for, for self-identity, the, the fact that you live in a, in a beautiful Art Deco building is not going to make you happy if you're, you know, fighting with your parents or fighting with a spouse or struggling with financial issues. But we, we like to think of the Grand Concourse as, as a street that made people happy. It just, it's not, sadly, it's not true. One of my New York Times colleagues who grew up on the Grand Concourse, Joe Berger, and has written very eloquently about his years there, said to me when I was first working on the book, he said, don't romanticize this too much. And I think at the time I was very eager and ready to romanticize it, but it was very good advice. And he helped me understand that this this was a nuanced place and the lives lived here were, were like the lives lived anywhere. But there's also no denying it was a beautiful and prestige place in which to live. I guess like a lot of New York neighborhoods, it was really, it was like a small town, a little bit of a closed community. Yes, that's that's very true. And especially if you were young, your world was circumscribed by very few blocks, a few blocks. You went to the schoolyard where you played basketball. You went to your school. You went to the corner store. You went down the street where your friends lived or maybe your cousins or an aunt and uncle. And children were also allowed more freedom in those days, so they, they could, in fact, go, go further afield. You, you hear many stories about Bronx kids who routinely went, went down to what they call the city, you know, New York, Manhattan, the theaters, when they were really quite young on the subway. Very few parents would let their kids do it quite so easily today. But worlds were very circumscribed in, in a kind of a wonderful way, and you, you knew your neighbors, your, your relatives often lived nearby. And the streets, in a way, were an extension of, of your house, of your apartment, of your building. And you really did have the sense of, of living in a village. And this was not limited to the Bronx. You know, people who grew up in, in parts of Manhattan and certainly many parts of Brooklyn say the same thing. But it was certainly a very defining aspect of the neighborhoods fronting the Grand Concourse. This is Fordham Conversations from WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. 
just after the show at Cityscape with George Bodarkey on today's show, Odd Collections. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Constance Rosenblum. This neighborhood that we're talking about, when did this start to go away? It started to go away earlier than people realize. People say, well, you know, in in the 60s, the change started. You certainly noticed it by the late 60s. But the the seeds of change were planted much, much earlier. After World War II, there were not people coming into the neighborhood. There were rent-controlled apartments who wanted to give up a cheap apartment after the war. But increasingly... Families, especially with young children, were moving to the suburbs. There were there were loans available. There were federal highways to take them out. There were jobs out in the suburbs. The apartments of Grand Concourse, which seemed so spiffy in the 20s and the 30s and even the 40s, were suddenly seeming small and confining, and the buildings hadn't been improved in significant ways. The, the wiring didn't accommodate new kitchen equipment. The streets seemed small and narrow, and as people who had lived in this area left, increasingly newcomers came, many of them from the South Bronx, many of them black and and Latino, and they were working-class families, and they moved into some of the newly vacant apartments, and early on, the the transition was, was smooth and not traumatic, but Eventually, as as the city itself changed and the cities around America changed and were increasingly on the ropes, the pace of change was faster. And the, the older residents, largely white, many of them Jewish, left more and more rapidly. The newcomers came more and more rapidly. Increasingly, there were families on welfare and families beset by by various social ills. Drugs became an increasing problem. And landlords discovered that they could do very well by filling their their buildings with, with welfare recipients whose rents would be paid by the city. And it's hard to point to one thing that caused the problems. People like to say, well, Robert Moses' Cross Bronx Expressway is what destroyed the Bronx. People say Co-op City and the Northeast Bronx. That's what ruined, ruined the Grand Concourse because everyone from the Grand Concourse moved there. And, of course, both both of these things had, had tremendous and traumatic impact on this part of the city. The Cross Bronx, even if you don't believe it's what ruined the Bronx. It was a it was a devastating thing to happen to the neighborhoods through which it passed. And Co-op City was such a destination for so many West Bronx families. You'd see your neighbors move and you'd think, well, maybe I'll move too. They're nice new clean apartments and they have air conditioning and they have beautiful views and you know, what's not to like. But as as the area changed faster and faster, the the, the perception was that it was, it was changing even faster than that. And it was as if every time you heard of a person being mugged or attacked or killed, it was as if 20 people had been attacked. So it was not only the reality, but the perception that this was an, an ever more troubled part of the city. And people increasingly wanted to leave, except for people who had no choice but to live there. So by really the mid-60s or early 70s, things had really tipped. Tell me about what you would have seen in 1970 on a walk up the Grand Concourse. Well, ironically, the Grand Concourse 
didn't suffer as much as so many other parts of the Bronx, which are routinely described, def- compared, you know, to, to Dresden after the war. This area is just leveled, really hellish, indescribably awful places with almost no human beings and just, just rubble and decay and, and despair. For the most part, the buildings along the Grand Concourse were spared, the, the fires and the abandonment, partly because they were so solid and partly because they were they were really the last to go. And this was certainly true in the northern half of the Grand Concourse. But south south of Fordham Road, by the 70s and the early 80s, the Grand Concourse was, was a, a shadow of its former self. Buildings like like Roosevelt Gardens had been had been sapped of of whatever economic health they had and were inhabited entirely by welfare recipients who who struggled as much as anyone else in the neighborhood. There'd be no heat and no hot water. I mean, there was no water at one point in Roosevelt Gardens, and residents had to go downstairs with pails of water and fill them with water and bring them up to their apartments walking upstairs because the elevators didn't work so that they could wash their hands and use the toilets. And Lewis Lewis Morris, which was the premier apartment house on the Grand Concourse, was was in, in similar in similar trouble. There were there was fires, there was there was all sorts of deterioration. And if you looked East and west of the Grand Concourse, you would see buildings that had been destroyed by fire, that had been abandoned. There was real, there were really just shells of their of their former self, and it was also an extremely unsafe place to be. And crime and drugs and lack of civil lack of of city services made made the place uh, made the street a place you you simply didn't want to be. I'll ask you one more question. I'll close with this. When you were researching this book and writing it, was there sort of one story about the concourse that really stuck with you? Yes. The story that stuck with me the most is the story of the Bronx slave market, which is a story that many people are not familiar with, and I'm ashamed to say I wasn't, but I'm, I'm glad I am now, although it's a harrowing, devastating story. The Bronx slave market was an institution that existed in the shadows of the Grand Concourse and other parts of the borough, and similar similar outposts existed elsewhere in the city. What it was was mostly black women, many of them from Harlem, would would come up to streets along the, the Grand Concourse to the east and the west and gather there early in the morning with the hope of being plucked by a Grand Concourse housewife, most of whom were Jewish, for housework. And they would work in these apartments, scrubbing the floors, scrubbing the windows, all of this by hand. This was before the age of the Swiffer, remember, and doing many, many loads of laundry and working very, very hard for very, very little money. And we we tend to think of the Grand Concourse as, as a wonderful place to be for everyone. But the fact is, it was one of the, one of the people I, I talked to from, the, uh, from Fordham's African-American Oral History Project. He said the Grand Concourse wasn't grand for everyone. And I think that's a very profound and, and eloquent way of 
indicating that that many people lived on in the shadows and you have to wonder had had this street and others like it in the city been more welcoming to minorities earlier would would the history of the Bronx have have been different even slightly it's hard to say you can't know how history could be rewritten but I I found it tragic that not only did the Bronx slave market exist but it existed well into the 50s and it just or disappeared as the as the civil rights movement gained force and the economy improved. But it it is really an integral part of the area's history and it helps you understand the nuances with, with which you have to think of this area. Constance Rosenblum is the author of the book Boulevard of Dreams, Heady Times, Heartbreak and Hope Along the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, which is from NYU Press. Connie Rosenblum, thanks so much. Thank you very much. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, and as ever, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at wfuv.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a great weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.